you can be seated. Um, so can we do a little bit of audience interaction? Is that okay with everyone? You okay with shouting something out? I'm, I'm looking for you guys to help me stereotype. Stereotyping is bad, but let's do it for a second. If you hear about someone um, who is in prison or has been in prison, what are some stereotypes that society kind of builds for people in prison? Face tattoos. This spoken by a guard. And so, uh, we, so I heard murderer. They'll do it again. Yeah, they deserve it. I'm sorry? They're liars. Anybody else want to shout out your stereotype? Huh? Physically aggressive. Untrustworthy. Yeah, these are stereotypes that are built. Now, is this a true of all people that have been in prison? No, certainly not. Um, but it's stereotypes that we build. People in prison are bad guys. They'll never be successful, right? Um, they're cheats. They're liars. Um, but there's more than one type of prisoner, isn't there? Right? There are people put in prison because they committed a crime, but there are also other types of prisoners, um, hopefully more prevalent in other countries than in our own. They're called political prisoners. Uh, anybody want to hazard a guess as to what a political prisoner is? That's right. And so if you're the president and you say, this is the opinion of the country, and there's someone who, who steps up and is outspoken and says, no, that's wrong. This is what's true. What can happen to you in many countries is you get put in jail. They stick you in prison because you're you know, kind of disrupting the peace. And for those people, um, for political prisoners, for prisoners that aren't in jail because they committed some kind of like crime like theft, um, there's a different kind of attitude towards them, right? Um, sometimes it can be one of like sadness and pity. Their side lost. The cause that they fought so hard for is a lost cause. Um, in, in any case, those who are in prison are not generally seen with a great level of respect. No one looks at someone in jail and says, you've got the world by the tail. Like just Nobody does that. Um, do you guys remember uh, a few weeks ago, for those of you who are here, whenever we read uh, out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1? It's going to be up on the screen here in a second. This is what it said. This was Paul introducing this whole section of Scripture. And he says this. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's a dash, so he starts off a sentence, and he says, I, for this reason, he's going to say something. And then he says, who he is? I, Paul, a prisoner. And then he just kind of stops. He never finishes this sentence. It's one of the funny things, you know, about this part of the Bible. Paul likes to start sentences, and then he gets so carried away with his thoughts in the middle of the sentences that he, he doesn't come immediately back to what he was going to say. And so he starts off, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He breaks off mid-thought. Mid -thought. And the reason he stops 
is because he recognizes that what he just said um, could be taken the wrong way. Why am I a prisoner? Some of the people have never met him in person. They may have a question. Wait, 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 you're in jail? Um, Is it their fault? He says he's a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. Will they think it's their fault? What will they think about him? What will they think about his mission? What will they think about his credentials? And then he spends about 12 verses kind of explaining the idea that he's a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles and what that means. And so for the past several weeks, that's actually the the sentence that we've been unpacking. Um, As Paul explains what it means that he's a prisoner for Christ and that he is so on behalf of the Gentiles, he sums up um, this whole kind of big, long paragraph in the last verse that we read today. So the, the passage we, I was given is the ending of this paragraph. And he says this in verse three, thirteen. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul recognizes that his status as a prisoner, that his status as a prisoner who suffers, who has gone through hard things, who's been, he's been arrested, he's been beaten, he's been slandered and falsely accused. Paul recognizes that his status as a prisoner who has suffered might be offensive or scary to the people he's talking to. And so he says, don't lose heart. He's concerned with the attitude of their heart. He's concerned with what they think about his suffering. If Paul is in jail, after he explains that he, you know, all this, all this various stuff, if Paul, an apostle, is in jail, if he's suffering in that way, then what could they expect as people who weren't apostles? Would they suffer? If Paul, the apostle, is in a position where he's seen as a failure, which we've already talked about, that's kind of how people in prison are seen, then what message does that send about those that are listening to him and those that are following him? Will they fail? Um, Instead of saying... You know, I'm a failure. He argues this. He says that his suffering is not for bad, but for what? He says, for your glory. He calls it glory. He looks back at his time and his suffering and his imprisonment on behalf of these Gentiles, these people, these normal folk, and he says, it's glory. Um, So the question that comes up in my mind as I read this is how can he say that? Like, how can you look at someone and through all the suffering and all the pain of whatever you go through, because we all go through different types of pain and suffering, like at at a base level, how can you suffer? How can you be humiliated and put in jail and, and lose your dignity and say it's for, it's for glory? 
And so for the rest of our time today, um, we're just going to spend our time unpacking kind of two reasons you can say this. So not three, not four, just two. Just two. The first reason um, we're going to find in verse 11 is this. He can say that his suffering and his imprisonment is for their glory, including his imprisonment, because all of his ministry, all that he's done, all that he's doing is wrapped up in God's plan. And so he sees himself in prison and he says, this is a part of God's plan. We know this because of verse 11, which is up there now. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so talking about his entire explanation that was from 3-2 and downward, he says, this was all according to God's eternal purpose. Right? So God's eternal purpose, that means it's something that God had in mind since before he created the world. It's not like a, um, a last-minute change of plan. That Paul, being the type of minister to the type of people that he is, is not like plan B. From eternity, God had a plan. And according to what we've done over the past few weeks, it includes the work of Jesus, that Christ came and sacrificed himself. It includes the expansion of God's kingdom from, from just being kind of about a, a nation, a nation of Israel, to the whole world, all people, Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles alike. It involves Paul's commission. This is what Rich talked about last week, how Paul was set aside by God personally to preach the gospel. And it includes the growth and the testimony of the church. Also, Rich covered that last week. How the church is growing and expanding, and the church itself proclaims the wisdom of God. And so Paul looks back on all of that, and he says, God had a plan. His suffering and imprisonment wasn't a failure. It wasn't something to moan about. It wasn't something to complain about. Because God intended it. God looks at his imprisonment, his suffering, as a badge of honor. Did you see that? In verse 13, he says, I'm suffering for you and it's your glory. He sees it as honorable and good. His personal circumstances don't invalidate his life's purpose. Okay? God is on the throne. And so if we were to take a moment to apply this to us, you know, Paul is in his circumstances, the, the Ephesians were in their circumstances, we're in our circumstance. Um, the biblical truth is that if we suffer, um, our relationship with God is not thrown out the window. If bad things happen to us, it's not because God doesn't love us or care about us. God has a plan that includes our growth 
and that growth sometimes involves suffering. So I, I recognize that this is really easy to say. Like, it's really easy for me to look out at you guys and say, if you're a Christian and you're growing in God, you're going to suffer. And that's a part of God's plan for your life. He means for you to grow through it. Right? I can write it on a little card. God has a, you know, a time for you and, and hand it to you. Um, but I recognize, I recognize that sometimes that is comfort. Right? Um, sometimes something happens to us and we stop and we think and think, oh, this is part of God's plan and we're at peace about it, right? But sometimes something bad happens to us and instead of saying, this is a part of God's plan, we say, this is a part of God's plan? Right? Really, this is what he wants? God means for me uh, to... I have examples, but I know so many of you have gone through them all, and so I don't, I don't mean to offend you whenever I say this. But like, so God means for me to lose a job. God means for my roof to fall in, and now I have to blow my savings. God means for me to struggle to have kids. Like, God means for my son to have a birth defect that means he has to have surgery when he's two. Like, this is all a part of my growth? That last one was our son. Like, there are times when it doesn't feel comforting. And so I just want to acknowledge that. But I also want to acknowledge that that experience of tension there when it's not comforting comforting is not a product of reality right god really really does from the bible mean for our good to come out of suffering he really does so it's not a question of the reality it's a question about emotion of about emotions it's about our experience. It's about how we look at God and how we feel like God is looking at us. So the first reason that Paul can say my suffering is glory is because he recognizes that his suffering is wrapped up in God's plan. If that doesn't give us comfort, maybe the second reason will. The second reason is this. Paul can say to the Ephesians, don't lose heart. My suffering is, is glorious because of what he knows about the Christian's relationship to God. He knows something about uh, a follower of Jesus' status and relationship with God 
that overwhelmingly turns bad situations into glory. That may sound like an odd statement, so I'm going to give a little bit of context. Um, in the Old Testament, we have the book of Exodus, and the, the central event of the book of Exodus is the rescue of God's people of Israel from Egypt. So if you guys have ever seen Ten Commandments or, you know, the Prince of Egypt, that's basically the story. That's what the book of Exodus is about, although both of those movies took liberties. So, you know, read the Bible. Um, but that's what the book's about. And towards the end of the book of Exodus, um, the people of Israel have been saved. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've experienced miracle after miracle after miracle and they arrive at what's called the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And as the people kind of gather and set up camp, even though they've witnessed miracles, and even though they've been saved by God directly, and even though he said, you're my people, they're still like, they're doubtful. They've complained a long time as they've walked to the mountain. Um, they're dysfunctional. Um, there's going to be a rebellion not too long after they arrive at the mountain, and a lot of people are going to die because of it. And they're kind of, they're just dirty. They're still worshiping gods from Egypt. They're, they're, they're declared the people of God by God, but they don't look like it at all. And God acknowledges this. Um, so the presence of God is represented kind of like this, by this cloud of smoke and this pillar of fire through the book of Exodus. And at one point, it ascends onto the top of the mountain. And there's thunder and lightning and rumbling, and the presence of God is powerful on the mountain in a big way. And God tells Moses, his prophet, to tell the people, don't you dare come near the mountain. If you touch it, if, you, if, you sur if they survive touching it, he said they have to be put to death. He looked at this dirty, dysfunctional people, and he said, they are not ready for my presence. They can't be in my presence. And so he says, no one comes on the mountain. And then he makes, he makes a, a way for Moses, who's a prophet, to be able to consecrate himself and consecrate the people. He goes through a ritual, and um, he, he does the same ritual with the priests and with his brother Aaron. And after uh, rich rituals of consecration, Moses and his brother Aaron are able to go up on the mountain. Um, but no one else, and Aaron doesn't even go up all the way. And so there's separation. The Israelites' relationship to God, God's people's relationship to him, was one of distance. And it continued after Sinai in the temple. If you were an Israelite woman, you stayed on the outer court. You're an Israelite man, you could come one step closer.
but then you had to be a priest or a Levite to get closer. And then to get to the most holy place, you had to be the high priest once a year. You see the separation? Literal walls and curtains of separation. God's people were held at a distance. So that's not very comforting. <laughs> the idea that we're held at distance. But I think if we all looked at ourselves, we would say, we've been doubtful, we've been dysfunctional, we've been dirty, and we deserve distance. Because we're sinners. We are not perfect. So how can Paul say, don't lose heart? What is it that he knows about the, the Christian's relationship to God? This is what he knows. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything about a person's relationship to God. Um, if you could put verse 12 up on the board. I'm sorry, verse 11 again. My apology. See, the end of this, his eternal purpose, is realized, it's accomplished, it's done in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had a purpose that wasn't accomplished at Sinai, but was accomplished by Jesus. If God at Sinai was apart from us, Jesus is Emmanuel. The Bible says, God with us. God came down to us off the mountain. And if the people at Sinai had to go through complex rituals of consecration, in Jesus we have the image of God himself doing the cleansing of the people. God cleans us. Jesus improves us. And then throughout the scripture, we've, and we've actually talked about it three times already in the book of Ephesians, um, there's this idea of adoption. Not only does he come down to us, not only does he clean us, not only does he improve us, but he adopts us into his family. Jesus changes everything. Verse 12, we see the implications of this. So talking about Christ Jesus, Paul says this. Um, that Christ Jesus is the one in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Um, we're going to take a little bit to break this down and then we'll, we'll close out. In Christ, first off, we have boldness. Who here feels bold? Raise your hand if you're like a bold person. I know a couple of you are bold. Yeah, okay, we got at least one hand. All right. Um, as I'm reading this uh, this week, and I started with that word, I'm thinking like, God gives us boldness uh, to approach him. And I was like, wow, I don't... I don't know that I feel bold ever, let alone whenever I'm approaching, like, in my prayers, the God of the universe who created everything. Like, I don't feel particularly bold. 
And so um, I, was, I was trying to do some research on this to try to picture, what does Paul mean by this? Does he picture every Christian kind of going into the presence of God and puffing out their chest and being like, God, I'm here, you know? Is, is that what he's picturing? Um, and not quite, not quite. Um, a really good parallel in English to this word boldness that we have here is the concept of freedom of speech. So you guys, you know, like the First Amendment, freedom of speech, what does that guarantee Americans? The ability for us to go out and speak our mind, and we don't become political prisoners, right? We don't get put in jail. That's the idea with freedom of speech. Um, the idea is here is that this boldness that it's talking about means that we are able to come before God, and we, we have like a freedom to talk to him. We have a freedom to like open up our hearts and say things. That doesn't mean that we're free to disrespect him or blaspheme him or like curse at him, but it means that we can go to him with our insecurities and our lack of boldness. See, instead of going to God on our knees and saying, Lord, I don't feel worthy, we can go to God and say, Lord, I know I'm not worthy but you've made a way for me. And so we're given boldness, the ability to speak freely to God. But in what context? That's kind of the question. So if we're given freedom of speech, what context do we have for that? That brings us to the, to the second word we want to look at, in whom we have boldness and what? We have access Um, to risk restating, access simply means that we're not the people um, in the valley in front of Sinai. We don't have to talk to Moses, who then is going to go up on the mountain and talk to God for us. Um, there is no priest, there's no saint, there's no holy man or monk that we need to go to because they're closer to God to speak to. Jesus changes everything for us personally because when we're suffering, even if we're in prison, God doesn't hold us at arm's length. He invites us in. We can approach him in parallel passages to this, where similar words and concepts are used, the term, um, the phrase, draw near, is often there. We can draw near to the throne. We can draw near to God. We don't have to stand far off. Um, a question comes out of this, because if we're using the imagery of Sinai, um, like, at the mountain... God was present in fire and clouds and thunder and rumbling and like scary, frightening. The fact that we can approach God's throne as we pray and as we pursue him is no minor thing because he's no minor God. And so shouldn't like our access scare us? Like shouldn't there be some fear? That if we draw near to God, we might be getting ourselves involved in a dangerous situation. 
that leads us into the next word here in verse 12. In him we have access with what? With confidence. That means we're not shaky. That means we're not worried. Um, it means we view him as a friend, as a father. And I should specify as a good father. Because my kids sometimes <laughs> approach me with fear that I put in them that is not the kind of fear that God puts in us, right? So not just a father, but a good father. Again, the confidence thing is hard for me personally. I don't know about you, but I often lack confidence. And the reason I lack confidence is because like you know yourself and you know all of your junk, I know my junk. Like Rich spoke that last week whenever he said, Paul wasn't the worst, I'm the worst, right? We all feel that way. And so we could ask the question, how is it possible that I can approach God with confidence? I know me. That's explained in the next part of verse 12. I have confidence through our faith. What is faith? Faith is assured belief in things that maybe you can't even see. It's resolute belief. And so if we have strong faith, it means that we can be confident because we're assured. Confidence and faith go together. But notice that it's not a generic faith. It's not a faith that says, I just believe, right? Well, you could ask, well, believe in what? What do you believe in? And it's our faith in the last part of this verse is in him. Again, Jesus changes everything. Jesus makes everything different. We can approach God. We can draw close to him. We can do so with confidence as we have faith in Jesus. So as we look to Christ, as we think about his sacrifice, as we think about what he's done for us, and as we believe in his goodness towards us, and as we anticipate his coming kingdom, we can draw near to God. But without that faith, we won't. Because Jesus is the one who changes everything. And so if we live in a place where we feel like nothing has changed, then maybe the problem is, is we're not having faith or looking at Christ. How can Paul look at his suffering and say that it's glorious? Because Paul has a deep, deep relationship with Christ. When Paul kneels to pray, he feels close. And when he feels far away, he reminds himself of the truth and he draws near. 
So let's apply this for just a moment. I can look out at you and I can say, if you want comfort, real comfort in this life that lasts through all circumstances, that will last through the loss of jobs and loved ones and sicknesses, if you want real comfort, I, it's easy I can look at, it's easy to look at you and say, draw near to God. And like I caught myself talking, talking to me this week. Tony, you need to draw near to God. And I, I, was, I was in the place where I'm, I'm like looking at the scripture and I'm praying and I'm saying, what does that even mean? Draw near. I don't feel near. What more can I do to get near? It's like, Lord, is there a literal mountain that I can go to? Right? Is there, is there a place? Is there a temple that I can walk into? And what I was convicted of was the truth that this passage and the gospel preaches is that God is with us. God has come down. He sends the Holy Spirit. He's right here. He's right here. When I hurt and when I feel discouraged and whenever I feel like my sin is going to conquer me again and again and again, God is right there. He's not pushing me away and he's not pushing you away. There is no filth or dirtiness in you that is making God push you away. If you have Christ, if you know him, if you believe in him, if you are his, then his blood covers your sin. And there's no distance, there's no need for distance between you and God. So how do we draw near? This is a boring answer, but it's an easy one. We have to pray. We have to spend less time thinking about how unworthy we feel or spend less time thinking about the failure that we are. We have to stop spending so much time thinking about um, our wants and start thinking about him. We have to think about the gospel. And we have to talk to God about the gospel. We have to talk to him about our hurts and our pain. Even if we don't hear an immediate response back. Lord, I lost my job, or I may lose my job, or or I don't know where the money's going to come from. Or my mom hates me. Or my dad doesn't want anything to do with me. We take those to him. And sometimes we just say, Lord, I hurt. And that may be our prayer. But we have to pray. We have to pray. We have to pray. So this week, uh, pray. Pray an imperfect prayer. Start praying without knowing what you're going to pray about. Just get alone. 
in your room or, I mean, in the shower. I don't know. Get alone somewhere where no one's bucking you and just say to God, Lord, I, here I am. I know you're close. Repent of your sin. Talk to him about your hurts. Pray. And see what he does in your heart. So I'm going to conclude with this. Um, bumps in the road are coming. Suffering is coming. If you feel great right now, wait a couple days. We will all suffer. And the suffering we're going through right now is probably not the last of our suffering. Even if it stops. Bumps in the road are coming. Pot potholes in the street are coming. But we don't need to cower. We don't need to shrink back. We don't need to cry at the heavens and say, God, why are you doing this? Why are you acting this way? Where are you? We should trust him. We know that he holds the whole world in his hands and that his plan is from eternity past. And we should draw near to him. We should seek him even when it's hard. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we need you.